When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Pamela Paul. I'm the host of the Book Review Podcast at the New York Times, and this is OPP. Pod bless and welcome to another episode of OPP. Other People's Podcast is America's number one podcast discovery platform that highlights your favorite podcasters and the dope shows they created. I'm your host, Corey Cambridge. Our special guest this episode is Pamela Paul, host of the New York Times Book Review Podcast. Along with hosting the podcast, Pamela is also a very accomplished journalist and author herself. And as for her day job as editor, she's responsible for all book coverage for the New York Times. Pamela stopped by the podcast and we chatted about her experience being a guest on The Oprah Winfrey Show, her favorite books from childhood, her writing process as an author, how she became a podcast host at The New York Times, and of course, we chatted about her dope show, The Book Review. So, without further ado, let me introduce you to Pamela Paul. What's up, Pamela? Hi, how are you? Yo, I'm really, really good. I can't complain. Like I told you, just came back from Minnesota, so it feels good to be back in the city. It's a good day to be in the city. The weather here is, for on a rare occasion, actually nice. Get that two-week period, that two-week period in, in New York City where it feels like L.A. And then it's going to be horrible. In like two weeks. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but we're good for now. Yes, we are. Absolutely. Are you from here? I am. Yeah. What part? So uh, I grew up part-time. Uh, I'm New York-ish. I'm okay. not a total New Yorker. Um, I grew up on Long Island and in the city on the weekends on the oh, Upper West Side. We're in Long Island. Uh oh, are you from Long Island? I, I got like a, a a little knowledge of it. Oh, okay, I thought if you had a little Long Island in your past, you would know. Um, it's Port Washington on the North Shore. Okay, what's it like growing up there? Um, it's like you're right outside the city, and you wish you were in the city. Okay, okay, <laughs> that's how it was for me. <laughs> that's how it was for me. I felt like I belonged to the city and not on Long Island. So, well, first of all, it's super nice to have you here on on the show. And you're like the first author that I've ever interviewed. I have my other show, Silent Giants, where I interview people, the creatives behind the scenes. I've never interviewed an author. So this is like my like a, a new thing for me. Oh, well, book glamour is not quite as exciting as like music glamour, or movie glamour, or TV glamour, but... I don't know. It's a, it's a regal <laughs> At glamour. At least it's different. It's a regal glamour. Okay. There's something about having like New York Times bestseller or something like that. On, it's, like, it's like Grammy award winning or Tony award winning. It just sounds nice. Okay. Well, I'm New York Times editor and author. Yeah. <laughs> Not quite New York Times bestseller. Oh, you're getting there. You're getting there. <laughs> we'll see. So I was doing some research on you, and I saw that you were on the Oprah Winfrey show. That was an incredible experience, yeah, I have to that's- say. <laughs> that was like, so I was on the Oprah Winfrey show in 2002 when my first book came out. And when you get that call that you are going to be on the Oprah Winfrey show, it's like, okay, everything is made. 
However, <laughs> it wasn't quite like that for me. I was, it turns out when you get there, sometimes they have authors on and it's like one author. And then other times they have multiple authors. Mm -hmm. And so there was another author on there and she was like the A-list author and she got to be on stage. And I was the second tier author. And so I was in the front row and I didn't find that out until I got into the studio and they were like, oh, no, 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 no. You know, you're not up there on stage. And this was a book that I had written about divorce. Yeah. And the person who was on stage had written a book about marriage. And her book specifically was what to do in order to know that you're getting married to the right person so you can avoid being divorced. And I was like the sad divorced person in the, you know, at the second on the second tier. Um, so I was like the 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 lesson of you know what would happen if you didn't read her book, then you would have to read my book about go. divorce. <laughs> um, but I have to say that when I got into that room, Oprah Winfrey has this insane level of charisma and energy. Like you cannot compare it to anyone, at least in my experience. So people are dancing and they're shouting and they're cheering. But in my mind, and I think this is the power of Oprah Winfrey, in that in my mind, everything melted away and it was just Oprah and me. And what she was saying to me while we were talking about you know, our books, and she was asking me questions. But what I was really hearing her say was, Pamela, none of this matters. None of these people matter. I am here for you. And I know that we're going to be good friends. And I know that we secretly have a connection and nothing else here matters. And I was like, I agree, Oprah. Wow. I, I agree. And she was like, let's get lunch after. And and the two of us will sit down and we'll talk. And, and I knew that we were going to be like best friends for the rest of our life and our lives. And, um, and at the end of the show, she got up, you know, and she started walking towards me. And I was like, this is it. Like, are we going to Chinese? Like, where are we getting lunch? And she just walked past me. And I actually never spoke to her again but that's the level like that's the kind of connection that yeah. she makes with people when you're in the room with her and i expect that everyone else in that audience and on stage and everywhere in that room essentially had the same experience as i did in which they felt like it was really just about you know them and oprah i think that, that's me like the magic about her as an interviewer right that she just has the ability to make you feel connected to her immediately right yeah it's like hard. it's like beyond empathy you know it's it's like empathy or something it's like there's not a word for what she does yeah i mean that's like the the, diff, the most difficult thing about interviewing is like you're sitting down with someone that you've never met before and to create that like bond or connection that isn't normally there right yeah. there is no connection we just right. met you know <laughs> I think that's probably the power of, of why she is is Oprah. What was the book that, that you were promoting on the show? So that book was called The Starter Marriage and the Future of Matrimony. It was the first book that I wrote. Oh, what was that about? It Well, it was about people who got married and divorced within five years of getting married, no kids, and sort of what that was about, why it happens. At that point, sort of looking at demographically, it was happening to a lot of people, a lot of Gen Xers, and sort mm -hmm. of why are they failing at marriage in this particular way? Why are they maybe getting married too quickly, maybe with too high expectations, um, and then perhaps giving up on it too easily, perhaps getting out sensibly before they got divorced and had kids. Is there a common thread amongst the books that you write? Yeah. So the common thread, I would say at least 
between the first three books was looking at sort of different aspects of consumer culture and the people who, you know, they affect. So sort of the interaction between these various industries and things that are being sold to people and the way that people um, sort of absorb that information and act on it. Wow. 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 How are you able to continue to write books, but also still read books and review books? Is there there ever a challenge? Um, Well, it's definitely a challenge, but I would say that, well, first of all, I don't actually review the books myself, so I'm overseeing people who do review. Um, But a lot of what I do in my job is um, sort of editorial oversight. A lot of it is management. Um, A lot of it is strategy. And to a certain extent, I'm actually editing, although not a lot of line editing. So for me... It's a very different kind of of process and energy that goes into writing, which is much more creative. Now, not creative in the sense that I'm not writing fiction, I'm not writing um, thrillers or fantasy or science fiction or anything that requires a lot of imagination, but it's a different muscle. Mm -hmm. So I feel like in my daily life, while there is some writing in it, um, it's not the same kind of, there's not the same kind of energy required and there isn't the same kind of particular form of fulfillment. There's a lot of fulfillment and I'm very happy with what I do during the day for the New York Times, but it's not quite the same thing. And so I, I do find that if I'm not writing, then it feels like something something's missing. I have a very cheesy question. Very so cheesy <laughs> questions are always the best. Uh, but you know, what book made you fall in love with literature? Oh gosh. You know, that's not a cheesy question. That's just a really hard question because so many books did. I would say that for me as a child, there were, and I can't answer with just one, Mm -hmm. but there were a few books that really inspired me. One was, and this is a category in general, I was totally fascinated from an early age with biography. At the children's library and the public library in my town, there was a wall of of biographies, alphabetical by subject, and I was just drawn to them. the way I think of it is it's a kind of self-help for children. I was really just curious, how did people get to where they were? How do, where did, how do people get to where they're going and how do they figure out where it is they want to go? Um, so for me, I would read, and at, in, at that time, there were not a lot of books about women. So you were kind of stuck to stuck with um, nurses and first ladies. and But someone like Helen Keller, for example, I, I could not read enough about Helen Keller because for me, it was unimaginable to have to go through life with the challenges of uh, not being able to hear or to see and to deal with that level of frustration and to overcome that. And I have to say, as a child, um, I found it incredibly um, constructive and soothing in a way because it made all of my little petty problems, you know, about sort of not having cool clothes and always wearing my brother's hand-me-downs seem really small by comparison. Um, and so I, I was drawn to biographies um, in a serious way. And then I would also say another book that I thought uh, had a strong impact on me, again, this is when I was really young, um, was Madeline LaEngle's A Wrinkle in Time, Mm. um, which was the heroine Meg Murray was kind of unlike other um, heroines of stories and that, you know, she wasn't perfect and she was academically oriented but insecure about her own abilities. And in the course of this fantastical story, you know, becomes a real heroine. And so for me, that was very inspirational. Was there an author that made you go, wow, I have to like (laughs) start writing? 
you know, when I was young, not really. I was too intimidated, I think. And I also knew from a pretty early age, I would say, it became clear to me that I could never write fiction, that I just didn't have that um, ability. Um, I would say that as I got older and I started to read what journalists were writing, um, that's when I became inspired to write about what was going on in the world, to try to make sense of it. And then later on, when I started writing myself, to write specifically about books and the arts felt like a very important thing to do in the world to kind of recognize art where it exists and to call out what's good and to perhaps help with things that might not be quite as good um, and to kind of do that that service for people who are trying to figure out what is it that's worthwhile out there? What is it that I should read or watch or do or listen to? Because do you feel like at times you are a a journalist who is an author, an author who's a journalist? You know, if people ask um, what I do, I usually say I'm a journalist. Like if I have to fill out a form, I don't say author in part. That's because it just feels so pretentious. I remember the first time I ever said that I was a writer when someone asked what I did. I had spent a number of years working in media companies and television and documentary film um, and in publishing um, mostly on the business and sort of new new business development strategy side. And it wasn't until I quit those jobs and started writing full-time that I could say I was a writer. And the first time someone asked me what I did, I was in France at the time. And in French, you don't say, I am a writer. It's like, you just say, I am writer. Like, je suis écrivain, which mm. sounds so pretentious. It's like saying, <laughs> I am a poet or I am a philosopher. You said, I was like, Ooh. Yeah, no, it just sounds obnoxious. And I, and I cringe the moment I said it. Um, so I, I think of myself primarily as a journalist. That's my full-time job. And I I feel like what I like about journalism as a kind of way of identifying myself is that the journalists are the observers, you know, where the, we, we, we filter the world. So we're not creating anything. Um, we are, we're the ones, and I think of myself as the person who in the room is sort of standing at the back of the room, leaning against the wall, watching everyone else um, and observing what's going on. And that's kind of my comfort position. Wow. So uh, Pamela, we're going to take a quick break. When we get back, we're going to get into your podcast. Okay? Excellent. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So Pamela, how'd you first get into podcasting? Well, when I joined the New York Times, I first came there to the book review as the children's books editor, and then later on became the features editor. And in 2013, when I took over the position that had been held by my predecessor, Sam Tannenhaus, as the editor of the book review, that came with a podcast because he was the host of a weekly podcast. It is the oldest and longest running podcast at the New York Times. We're in our 16th year. So he had started it off with Dwight Garner, who 
who's now a daily book critic for the New York Times. And they started it at a time where everyone was like, what's a podcast? You know, really, really early days and had come up with this format and we're hosting it every, they were hosting it every week. And I had gone on to the podcast as a guest before I came to the New York Times when I reviewed a book or when I wrote a book, I was often invited on to talk about it on the podcast. When I became the editor, I kind of knew that was part of the job. Nonetheless, it was a little bit surprising when um, Sam one week said, I'm hosting my last podcast and next week it's all yours. So that's how I became a podcast host with literally and truly no experience at hosting a podcast. I was very much learning, you know, I would say on the ground, but more like in a makeshift studio at the New York Times. Yeah. How did you find like the ability to to build your skill set, you know, and find your voice. Was that a challenge for you? It was a challenge. It was interesting um, because I had the advantage of having an established podcast that I was stepping into. At that time, there was already a format to the podcast and I didn't reformat it um, at all for the first, you know, few months. It took a while before I decided, okay, I'm going to change this up a little bit because I first just needed to get comfortable with what it was. But I had the advantage that Sam Tannenhaus had created this podcast and talked to me about how he did it. And one of the things he said early on, and I witnessed this having worked alongside him, is that he didn't prepare for the podcast, which I found to be shocking because the format of the book review podcast at that time, and it's changed slightly, and I'll talk about that, was that he would interview two authors or critics. So it was either talking to the author of a book or talking to the critic who had reviewed the book about the book. So if, for example, you had a very negative review, you wouldn't really want to have that author on to talk about it. You might have the critic in to talk about, well, why did this book get a bad review? What was this book trying to do? And how did it fail and succeed at at doing that? Um, so that was how the the podcast would start, and then it would follow up with a segment um, with our publishing reporter, and then another segment with the person who wrote a, bo- a column called Inside the List about the bestsellers that week, about what was selling, what people were reading, and sort of any interesting stories about what was new on the list. That was the format I came into. And when Sam told me that he didn't prepare, it was shocking to me because we would have all kinds of authors come in, often writing books that were highly specialized, whether it was a work of history or economics or philosophy or climate science or whatever it might be, or a novel. And I thought, well, how can you talk to someone about their book if you haven't read it and you don't know anything about it? Um, But his point, and I think it was a valid one, is that, well, the listener doesn't know anything about those books either. They're coming into it fresh. They haven't read the review yet. They haven't read the book yet in all likelihood. And so you're there as a stand-in for the listener. And if you ask all the dumb, obvious questions, well, you're asking what the listener wants to know because they don't know anything either. So I thought that was very instructive. And I, I tailored it a bit. I have to say, I don't go into it wholly unprepared. Um, Sam is a very agile, very nimble thinker, and he can spontaneously come up with questions and and he has an excellent memory and and sort of pull facts out from history. And I don't have quite that level of skill um, in in that particular regard. So I felt like I needed to do a little bit more preparation before I talked to someone. But I do think that the fundamental point he was making, that you are standing in for the listener, is a really smart one and one that I've taken to heart and that I continue to kind of use as I as I host the podcast myself. Have you felt comfortable being the the voice of literature on one of the largest, the largest publication in America? Well, you know, I'm very comfortable with books. 
whether it's fiction or nonfiction. I understand that format. And the thing about books that's interesting is that books, of course, are just a, a form of media. It's just a medium. Mm-hmm. It's a lens through which you can talk about every subject because there's books on every subject in the real world. And then in fiction, there are books in you know that are literary fiction, that are crime, that are mysteries, that are true crime, that are fantasy, science fiction, that are Westerns, that are romances. So you've books of fiction that are on a whole other kind of, you know, spectrum of, of subjects and genres. And so what they all have in common, though, with the, is that they are all books, that they are all trying to tell some kind of story. And so at heart, if I understand, and I feel like an advantage that I have is that I've written books myself, is that it's a lot of it is about, well, how do you create that story? What's the process like of writing? How did you go about researching it? How did you come to think that this was would be your subject? Um, what surprised you about the book? What, um, what did you learn yourself along the way? Those are the kind of questions that really apply to any book. And then in terms of the subject matter, like if I'm talking to the author of a book of military history or a book about the history of Poland, I'm asking again, it's that's that lesson of being the stand-in for the listener. I don't know that much about Polish history, so I kind of want to know. Like, well, you know, I don't know. What what, what questions might one want to know about the history of Poland? Why Poland? How did you come to this? How has Poland changed since the fall of the Soviet Union? You know, just sort of obvious questions that anyone would want to know. I'm sort of asking those. Obviously, you have an amazing platform where a person writes a book that they can get an amazing review. Uh, Has there been like a feel-good story or moment where you were like, man, I'm really glad that I, I supported that author and, and now their career's taken off. Well, I don't know that that we're solely responsible for anyone's career taking off, but I think that what I hope that we do is that when people do get a positive review in the New York Times and they come on the podcast and are able to talk about it, that we are allowing for certain voices to get out there. And one of the things that's interesting too is that, you know, I used to not have anyone in on the podcast if their book had gotten a negative review. And then I realized, first of all, the podcast had grown so much. And secondly, that our podcast to audience is often very different from the book review audience. So the people who are listening, they're all around the world. They don't necessarily know that the bad the book got a negative review in the book review. And I might not agree with that negative review. So the podcast is another opportunity for that author to sort of get his or her voice out there and, okay. and to be known. Um, and so I really love having debut authors on the podcast. I'm, I'm a big fan of memoirs in general. And, um, and some people are just really good about talking about their own story and really good in, as you know, a host of a podcast, people, some people are really good um, when they're speaking, as good as they are on the page. And so in general... When I try to figure out who I'm going to talk to, I talk to the people that I'm most interested in. I talk to people who um, sometimes I've heard them speak elsewhere, and I know they're really good speakers. I know they have something to say. Um, and so I, I think that the, the sort of feel-good aspect of that for me is giving those people a chance to talk about their books, no matter what the reviews says or didn't say and to have people who may not have been aware of that author and his or her work know about it was there ever any pressure or or do you feel like a certain responsibility because of the platform you're on um there isn't really any pressure which is (laughs) i think one of the things i really like about it i do think that there is a responsibility to 
um, to authors in general, not just on the podcast, but through everything that I do at the, at the New York Times to be respectful of the fact that it takes a lot of work to write a book, um, that people put a lot of thought and energy into it, and that you don't ever want to be, you know, flippant about it or dismissive or in any way, you know, just because you might disagree with a book or you might not have enjoyed it yourself doesn't mean that there aren't people out there in the world that might enjoy it. And, and so I just want to hopefully honor that work and what I do. Yeah. Yeah. I would imagine that for me being an artist and a musician, I would feel kind of, I don't know, maybe a little bit, I don't know what the word is, a little bit of pressure critiquing someone else's work. Do you ever feel any type of way or awkwardness or uneasiness? Well, so I don't review people's work anymore as the editor of the book review, but I used to review. And the way I thought about it then, because I did write reviews that were negative, is that, first of all, as a reviewer, you're taking on your responsibility is not to the author or the editor of the book. You might admire them and maybe not admire this particular book, but you're not writing your review for them, really. You're writing it your review for readers, for people who have little time, lots to do, and they're trying to make a really hard decision about like, hey, I'm going to check out one book from the library this month, or I'm going to buy one book. Which one should it be? And someone really needs to be forthright and honest in assessing that work for them to say, you know what? This writer is really talented. His first three books were excellent. This is not his best work. And then the person can make a choice. And look, if they don't read that book, then there's some other author whose work they're going to read. So it's, as again, it's not, it's not, you don't want to be disrespectful of the work that that author put into the book, even if it's not a totally successful book. Um, but you have to remember, you're not writing it for that person. And, and, to a certain extent, depending on the author, and look, I know what it's like to get a negative review. It's really hurtful and painful and all of that negative stuff, but it can also be helpful. It can be helpful to know, oh, yeah, you know, that character wasn't fully drawn or he wasn't really persuasive in the making that point. In my next book, I'm going to do something different. We have a segment called our podcast respects where we ask folks uh, the subject of today's show to give us three three podcasts that you enjoy and describe them to us. The ones that I like to answer your question tend to be interview um, format. I, I have not listened to many narrative podcasts. Um, I think I'm drawn to interviews. And one of the reasons I enjoy hosting a podcast that is primarily through interview and through conversation is because that's what I really like to do is to talk to people, to ask questions. So I like other interview podcasts. I really like listening to, there's a few I can think of. One actually just stopped producing, but I thought it was really great. Michael Ian Black's podcast, How to Be Amazing. Um, he had interviewed me on his podcast and he's a really, really smart, astute, sensitive interviewer, really can draw people out. I mean, he had David Sedaris on his interview and got David Sedaris to tell him how much money he makes. You know, not everybody can draw someone out um, in that way. So I really enjoy How to Be Amazing, and there's a, a large uh, inventory of them on, on iTunes if people want to uh, go back and listen to old ones. I really like Preet Bharara's podcast, um, Stay Tuned, mm -hmm. in which he's looking at uh, sort of contemporary politics through specifically through kind of legal angle, from a legal angle, and he takes listener um, questions and questions from social media, and I find the questions themselves to be really um, smart, thoughtful questions that are highly specific um, about 
questions pertaining to law and to our kind of current political situation. And then he also has good authors on. So I listened to that. I think he's a really good interviewer. He asks, um, what I think of is sometimes, I mean, you called it a cheesy question. It was not a cheesy question. It's sometimes just the questions that you want to know, like you want to know that, you know, you just want to know. That's yeah. what people want to know. And I remember he was interviewing Michael McFall, who had been the ambassador to Russia. And he'd been the ambassador to Russia in the Obama administration. And um, he knew when he got there that he was being wiretapped all the time, that he was, you know, he was, they were listening in, the Russians. And so at a certain point, Preet said to Mike McFall, well, what was that like at the dinner table, like with your kids? You know, they're listening in. Like, how do you have a normal dinner conversation and i thought that's a brilliant question that's the question that you would want to know the answer to um and then another um uh another interview podcast i listen to it's also on public radio is the new yorkers uh the new yorker radio hour um primarily hosted by the new yorkers editor-in-chief david remnick but they also have other guest interviewers on and i think they have just a great choice of guests and subjects they cover politics they cover books but also the arts and um it's very well edited um so i really enjoy that i sometimes listen to studio 360 which is not quite a podcast more of a radio show but the lines are blurring it's very hard to right, say now. It's audio. At this point, it's all audio. Um, so those are some of the ones that I, I like listening to. I just like to listen to how people drop other people out. And I like to I like I like interviews where it stops feeling entirely like an interview and begins to feel more like a conversation. Mm -hmm. So Pamela, uh, my last question. Yes. If we wrap up the interview, is why do you podcast? Oh, you know, I said at the beginning of the show or towards the beginning that I was really surprised in a way taken aback when I had to host the podcast because I was thinking I was becoming the editor of the New York Times book review. I wasn't necessarily thinking of I'm becoming the host of the weekly podcast, uh, book review podcast. It's turned out to be one of my favorite parts of the job. And it's for exactly the reason that we were just talking about, which is that it's my chance to talk to people, to ask the questions that I want to ask. I love being able to look at the books that are coming out in the world, into the world world in a given week and to think, well, who do I really, which books am I most curious about? Which authors do I want to talk to? Who do I think our listeners would be interested in? What voices do I want to bring out there that maybe haven't been recognized? Or perhaps in other cases, voices that of people that are frequently interviewed, but maybe not about what I want to talk to them about, which is, well, how did you decide to, you know, sort of structure the opening of your novel that way. Like, where did you come up with that idea? How did you find that character? They might not be asked that question, you know, if they're interviewed on TV for two minutes, but those are the kind of things that I want to get into. So I absolutely love hosting the weekly podcast. Um, it's, it's my chance, again, if you're a curious person, it sounds like you are too, curious about people, what better, what better venue, what better form for that curiosity? Well, Pamela Paul, it's such an honor to have you on the podcast today. I'm a big fan of you and your work, and I'm really grateful to have you here today. Well, it's a total pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you all so much again for tuning in to another episode of OPP and to our special guest, Pamela Paul. Be sure to check out the New York Times book review podcast, and I'll provide the link for you in the description of this episode. This episode was mixed by Mark Bird. Music for this episode was produced by Richie Quake. And before I get out of here, be sure to check out my other show, Silent Giants. Silent Giants highlights the superstars behind the scenes of popular culture. And I'll provide the link for you in the description of this episode. 
I'm your host, Corey Cambridge. Pod bless. Till next time. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.